Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. How's everyone feeling today? Everyone happy to be at Sunny Hill Church this morning? Come on, I'm happy you're here today. I believe that God wants to speak to you. I believe he's got a word for you today. And... Um, we're kind of in a fairly heavy, potentially intense series called Finding Your Mind. Oh, there's a floating lectern just going across. This is cool. That's what a, yep, it can go there. That's perfect. Thanks, buddy. Cheers, pal. Let's give him a round of applause. Thank you for carrying the lectern. Awesome. So good. It's so that if I get really excited, I can just do the leap of faith and just jump onto that one this morning. Um, we're in a series at the moment called Finding Your Mind. okay whoa i feel like i'm the one on the outside of a nasty joke towards me my gosh that's awesome now we love you guys we love you do we do now we really do we really do because sometimes loving isn't easy you know sometimes you've got to choose to love you know it's just a choice no i'm playing um so we're in a series called Finding Your Mind because uh, we just see the reality of what's happening in the world right now. Mental health on the sharp decline, depression rates, anxiety rates, suicidal rates just going through the roof. Like, it's, it's crazy. In fact, uh, a dear friend of Sunny Hill who comes to this church, Hattie, an intensive care nurse, is just saying that it's been crazy. She's been seeing this in her workplace, uh, just increasing suicide attempts. This week, there's been four, where normally they're used to seeing a couple every few weeks. So there's been four this week. A friend that I've got in Ireland that works with people who are uh, families that are uh, uh, dealing with loss through suicide, um, he was retired, but they've called him back into service because just the the need is so significant Um, and so as a church sometimes we can just pretend that everything's all good and like we can have our gatherings which I love and we can sing the songs which I love doing but actually sometimes it's important just to 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 just speak about what we're seeing and how we respond to that so it is a bit different and uh, we will get to the bible but we're going to go on a journey first but before we do that I just want to start with a, a moment of lightness who wants to hear a joke yeah, some of you are like, I don't know, because like, we've heard your jokes and they suck. Um, I mean, it's nearly Christmas. Who's excited about Christmas, right? If you are, you may like this joke. I'm not going to guarantee because it's semi-inappropriate, but it is funny. Um, a- any animal lovers in the room? Okay, a few of you, right? So anyways, this woman loves budgies. Now, when I said that in the first service, they were like, what's a budgie? I mean, one of those bird things that sit in a cage, a colorful thing, not quite as good as a parrot, but better than a pigeon, basically. Um, this woman loves budgies, and she's like, oh, I just love them so much. And she's married to this guy who's like, just wants to give her her deepest dreams, desires. And so he goes to Pets at Home, or Pets for You, whatever it's called. And uh, he says, listen, I want to buy my wife a budgie for Christmas, and she loves budgies. And the pet shopkeeper says, like, how serious are you about this budgie? And uh, the guy says, listen, money is not an issue. I just want to tell my wife that I love her, so whatever it costs. He says, right, come out the back. Come out the back to where we keep the serious budgies, Right. And so the pet shopkeeper takes this dude out the back and pulls this blanket off. And under the blanket, there's this cage. And there's like a name plaque on that says Chet, C-H-E-T, a weird name, Chet. And there's this budgie, little blue budgie just in there. And the bloke's going, okay, cool. What's so good about this budgie? And the pet shopkeeper says, well, watch this. He gets a cigarette lighter out of his pocket. And he puts the lighter, gets it going, puts it under the right foot of the budgie. So animal lovers, no budgies were harmed in the making of this joke, okay? I noticed last week I showed a video about a camel, and this week I'm talking about a budgie. Like, why does this dude hate animals? Um, So just sets a little light going and puts it under the right foot of the budgie. 
and the budgie, Chet, he starts going, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is. And the bloke is like, that's amazing. Like, my wife is going to go nuts for that because she loves budgies and she loves Christmas. And the pet shop keeper's like, no, no, it gets better. It gets better. Watch this. And he moves the lighter under the left foot. And Chet starts singing, Christmas time, mistletoe and what? And the bloke's like, oh, my gosh, I've got to buy that for my wife. She's going to love it. How much do you want? And the pet shopkeeper says, 10 grand. We'll call it 10 grand and you can have it. The guy signs a check, takes Chet home in the cage, and he's so excited. He, he wraps up the cage in wrapping paper, pokes holes in the top because we love animals at Sunny Hill, just to make sure that the budgie can breathe. And he can't wait for Christmas. He's counting down the days. And then Christmas morning comes, and he carries this cage into the room where his wife is. And his wife is looking at the shape of the present, and she's thinking, oh, my gosh, could this be a bird? Could this be a budgie? I mean, he knows I love budgies. And so she takes the cage off him, and she can feel like all the indents of the cage shape. And she's thinking, this is actually a bird. This is a bird. And so she opens the cage and she's like, oh, it's a budgie. I love it so much. And he says, yeah, this is Chet, the budgie. He is no ordinary budgie. And she's like, well, what's not ordinary about him? He says, watch this. And he gets a lighter and he puts it under Chet's right foot. And what does Chet start singing? Jingle bell, jingle. A bit more gusto in the crowd. Yeah, jingle bell, jingle all the way. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is the best present I've ever had. And then the husband says, no, 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 watch this. Moves it under the other foot. And what does he start singing? Christmas time. And uh, she's like, that's amazing. She says, what happens if you move the flame between his legs? And so he goes, I don't know. So he moves the flame. And Chet goes, Chet's nuts roasting. I don't know. So, 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 so. Mixed response. I like it. That's a good joke. All right, let's get serious now. No more laughing. Finding your mind. How not to lose it this Christmas. Last week we looked at purpose and meaning because actually research is saying to us that it's not just biological and genes, biology and genes that determine whether we are depressed as a person or anxious. There are actually multiple external factors that can contribute to our sense of depression and anxiety. Things to do with habits and lifestyle and it's so interesting. They say there's like seven external factors and over these four weeks... We're going to be unpacking four of those. Last week I spoke about purpose and how that's essential to mental health and and just a flourishing in the mind. And this week we're going to be looking at finding your tribe. Finding your tribe, finding your community, finding your place, finding your fit. Because this is essential to mental well-being, a sense of belonging and acceptance. I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor and I lead a church. I'm saying that because the Bible says it, but I'm also saying that because that's what research is saying, is that people need a sense of belonging. Now, here's the problem. Look at this statistic. 39% of people feel like they are no longer close to anyone. That's a crazy statistic. That if that sense of connection is so paramount to one's sense of well-being and mental health, but 39% of people feel like they're no longer closer to anyone... And it doesn't mean that there's not people in their world. They might have loads of people in their world, but they don't feel close to anyone. It's bad news. Now, this uh, neurologist based in Chicago University by the name of John Cassiopo, he he studies loneliness a lot. And he says there is a tribal instinct built into our DNA. Like, and the Bible would affirm this too, like we were built for community. But even if you're not a Christian, it's undeniable that there is a tribal instinct in people. It's the thing that gives us the superpower over the created order. 
In other words, there are bigger animals than us, there are faster animals than us, but the thing that sets us apart is our ability to cooperate and co-labor and do stuff together so that we can be the dominant force on earth. Like there is a tribal instinct. And so Mother Teresa puts it like this, you can do what I cannot do, I can do what you cannot do, together we can do great things. There is a sense that together we can accomplish something significant. It's, it's kind of impressive, but look at this. So many people now are dying early, uh, uh, early deaths, like dying before their time. And they say 5% of those early deaths are to do with pollution. They say 20% are to do with obesity. 30% are to do with excessive drinking. And look at this, 45% are to do with loneliness. People dying early because of loneliness. That's a crazy statistic. This is an accepted statistic. I haven't made it up. This is an accept, accepted statistic. Now look at this. The reason that people are dying young is because loneliness increases these things. Defensiveness. People get more defensive when they're feeling lonely because they're more concerned with their own welfare and they become territorial. So they're constantly grappling with this sense of threat and like making sure that I'm okay. They also, loneliness increases depressive symptoms. You become retreat, you, you, you lower, you're quiet, you're, you're reclusive, you, you have low days, you're lethargic and fatigued. So loneliness actually increases depressive symptoms. We also see that loneliness increases cortisol levels, which is a hormone that the, the brain releases to help you if you are in a threatening situation. Like let's say a tiger just came into the room, your brain would release a measure of adrenaline so that you can think quick and respond to the threat that's before you. But what loneliness does is it drip feeds that cortisol into your system so that through the day you're feeling like you're constantly on the edge. Has anyone ever felt like that? Like you're just anxious about something and you, you can't really put your finger on it. But actually, science is saying that the root of that could well be loneliness. Not always, but sometimes. And also this, prepotent responding. You are more inclined to have impulsive outbursts if you are lonely. You're more likely to be snappy and make irrational, unreasonable decisions in a moment because you are lonely. It's interesting. Can we move on, please? Maslow, uh, the psychiatrist from the 50s, the famous guy who came up with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, says there are fundamentally five things that a human being needs to flourish in life. There's the physiological need, which most of us would accept. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need sleep in order to be healthy. And we would go, of course, we need those things to be healthy. We need food, we need water. But there's also psychological needs that we have as a person. And we don't often talk about that. Like there's a certain form of oxygen for our mind. There's a food, there's a water for our mind. And he's saying that this is basically for a full holistic flourishing. You need your physiological needs met, you need your safety needs met, but you also need Love and belonging, a sense of friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. You also need to have good self-esteem, and you also need to understand your purpose, which is what self-actualization means. Now, this guy is Johan Hari, and he is the leading voice on depression right now in the world. And he's saying this, we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes, and it's making us feel awful. Like, he's acknowledging this. It's saying we're the first humans in history that are proactively deconstructing community and society feels rubbish about it. And we see this where through social media, 
People retreating from genuine connection and friendship, retreating to screens, and it's not real connection, and people are feeling reasonable. We see it in the gaming world where people are no longer going down the field to have a kick around with their friends and have that connection, but rather playing FIFA and like not even in the same room anymore, online, this superficial connection. Now, I'm not judging anyone. I've done that. I do that. I like FIFA, but it doesn't replace the need for connection. We see it even in the workplace that people now aren't going to an office anymore. So you can't even look for community with your colleagues. People are working from home in isolation. And so, even unknowingly, there is a deconstruction of community. And to be honest, we feel crap about it. It's the bottom line, because we need it. Look at this. This is a destructive cycle that they say we kind of go through. We feel a sense of isolation, so we isolate ourselves. We feel like maybe we don't fit in, and so we retreat. The problem is that produces a sense of loneliness in us. And as we allow loneliness to get a hold of our thinking and our outlook and our mindset, it makes a pathway for depression, depressive symptoms. And this is the vicious cycle. Now I'm depressed, I no, lo no longer want company. I no longer want connection. I no longer want people. So because I'm depressed, I'm going to remain in isolation. In fact, I might even get more isolated. Is everyone tracking with me this morning? Okay. Now, it's interesting because even the medical state profession has acknowledged that there is this vicious cycle. And they are saying for some reason, and they know why, but ultimately antidepressant drugs don't always touch the sides. Because antidepressant drugs will only speak to two of the nine factors that contribute to depression. So what they've started doing is this, social prescribing. I don't know if you've heard of that. Put your hand up if you've heard of that. Like this was new for me, social prescribing. Basically, they're saying, we can give you as many drugs as there are on the market, but it's not what you need. What you need is a social life. Basically, I'm going to prescribe a social life for you. I think that would be a cool job. That would be awesome. I'm going to prescribe a social life right now. Let's go clubbing. I know I wouldn't do that. I'm a Christian. Obviously, I wouldn't do that. But social prescribing. In fact, Louise was at the doctor's uh, the other day for, what, what were we doing? Oh, ah. When you did that in the first service, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> that's, that's like maybe that's the sign language for flu stuff. I don't know. But um, took Zeke, and she sent me a picture of this poster on, on the foyer in the doctor's surgery that, that spoke of these social prescriptions, where doctors are now saying, hey, I can give you antidepressants, but what about if I gave you a friend instead? <laughs> and it's interesting, because it started in a doctor's surgery in East London, a poor part of London. And um, you know, it, interesting that... The, 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 the doctors there saw an increase in just more and more people coming in with these depressive symptoms. I'm feeling fatigue, I'm feeling low, I'm feeling burnt out, I don't want to get out of bed, I don't want to go to work. And some of you are thinking, yeah, that's just a Monday morning, isn't it? Uh, but you know, this was a serious thing, and they couldn't overcome it. And the doctor was thinking, I can't just keep giving meds. So what he decided to do was to get all of these people who were coming with these depressive symptoms and start a gardening group. Now, none of them had an interest in gardening. It's not like they were all like Alan Titchmarsh, like wannabes. They didn't have like Alan's face tattooed on their body. He just knew if he could rally them around a purpose outside of themselves, then maybe it would give them the chance to see beyond them. Like, I don't even know what that gardening group looks like. Just a group of depressed people <laughs> gardening. I mean, my, my humor's a bit warped, but I just think it's funny. Like, everyone's miserable and like, they've been gardening. I, I hate gardening anyways at the best of times, but the, you know, you love it. Well, that's good. Not from me. But, you know, it's interesting that the doctor's surgery report, that the, the, 
the sense of esteem and value and purpose and worth and connection, tribe, community, this thing was contributing to an upturn in their, an upturn in their mental health. To the point that these people then wanted to start hanging around outside of the garden hours. Like no longer did they just want to be faithful to the prescription. They were now saying, okay, oh, do you want to meet up? And, 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 you know, this doctor, obviously, as soon as you innovate, you then become the, the model. And so all of a sudden, he's flown around the world to speak about this new idea that, like, like he's come up with. Like, I think I've found something amazing. Basically, people need people, basically. And people are like, wow! Well, everything that we've been working on a drug. We've spent billions of dollars on developing a drug, but it's just basically people need people. I'm only saying this is one factor. I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it is a significant factor. Because ultimately, there's three components of healthy tribe. And we are going to get to the scriptures, but I need to get you to see the backdrop of it. Three components of healthy tribe. Number one is this. You need face-to-face. You need face-to-face. You need to be physically present before somebody. On there, they say, you need to be touched. And I'm like, amen. Amen. Hand up, so if you like to be touched. Ah, oh, not any of you. I said, we should all touch each other. Let's have a big cuddle, like a second service cuddle. I always say, you know, there's five love languages for married couples, right? You know them? Gifts, quality time, acts of service, and physical touch. I say, I have two really top high ones. I say, number one's physical touch, and number two is touch me again. No. <laughs> face to face, we just need that physical connection. But also, another component of healthy tribe is a common identity. We, we need a celebration of sameness in a world that is, seems to be so biased on uniqueness. Actually, we need to be able to identify with people like us, that relate to us. Like, I could hang out with William and Harry, and that would be cool, but they'd never relate to me because I'm just so awesome. I'm playing. Yeah. That I can't relate. They're not my level. I need a sense of sameness. People who can identify. Like people flourish with that. Think about World War II. Like the community was so strong because they're in the same situation together. There's a commonness about their situation. There, there were rations. Everyone was on a level playing field. The struggles were equal. It was fair. We were all in the same boat. But there was, there was a greater measure of mental health. How is that? To be in a wartime period and be mentally healthier. I mean, to be honest, it's... Fair to say that anxiety and depression is actually a first world problem. Like, I've been to Burma, right? An incredibly poor country, persecuted country, but people seem way happier. Like, why is that? Like, you don't have a TV, you don't have an iPad, you don't have the latest iPhone, you don't play Call of Duty, you don't, you don't go on FIFA, you don't have an Instagram account, yet you seem to smile all the time. How is that possible? Because there's a sense of community about what they do. There's a sense of commonness. And also, another component of healthy tribe is to be cause-oriented. So to rally together around something that speaks over your personal benefits and needs. Now, I did this last week with purpose, and I want to propose to you three enemies of all of those components of health. The first enemy is this online connectivity. The celebration of a perceived popularity, like if I've got 50 likes, then that's a good day. And we start measuring our self-esteem in according to how many likes have I got today. I'll go into this more next week when we talk about junk values, but basically a celebration of likes and connectivity and a superficiality around connection rather than genuine friendships. 
Like you, you can literally have like a thousand, a thousand friends on Facebook. But if you want to go for a drink tonight or go out for food tonight, who are you going to call? Not the Ghostbusters, by the way. Like, everyone's thinking it. Who are you going to call? Yeah, well, maybe you would. I don't know. What comes around this common identity and opposition to that is individualism. The world is always doing this self-help stuff. You just got to be you. You got to be you, man. Just be you. It'll be you. Be the best you. Just be you. But the problem is it's just getting us in a hole. <laughs> because actually a better philosophy in life is to say, no, 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 no. Don't be you. Be us. Don't be you. Be we. Like we're all about the for the one, the one who's outside of us. But as soon as they come a part of us, they're then an us. It's us. And we become one. It's not individualism. It's not, that's not the way the kingdom is oriented. It's that it, we're an us. We're a we. We're a body. We're a family. We're a fellowship. There are no individuals in the kingdom of God. And the third thing is, enemy is to be self-oriented. It's all about me. What I like, my preferences. And this is what like, kills community. Where you can no longer see. I mean, the world is so divided right now. Because people are self-oriented. They can't see past their own preferences or political standpoint or theological ideals or philosophical models. They cannot see beyond it and there is division across the board. Next time, we need to move on. So, it's interesting because I could go really multiple places in the scripture. And when I was thinking about the problem, I thought of different ways that we can respond to the tension that we're seeing in the world, right? I could start in Genesis, and I could say that this God of creation, but let me say this, you might not believe the Bible, you may not be a Christian here today, we love the fact that you're here, and you might disagree completely with what I'm about to say, but you can't deny that the problem exists, bottom line, right? The problem's there, okay? So you've got to do something with the problem when you leave today. But I could start with a Genesis account where God says, let us make man in our image. So, back step. Let us make man in our image. Right at the outset of the Genesis account, God is saying to mankind, we're in us. Who are we? Who is God talking about? Has he got split personality? What is he talking about? Well, actually, you see the revelation through Scripture that God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself is a community. Different persons of this community that minister in different ways, but relate perfectly to one another. And so God exists outside of time. says, let us make man in our image. So the second acknowledgement we could make is, so not only is God in us, he makes us in that image. So our tribal instinct isn't just evolved because we came from a monkey and we learned to scrap together. Our tribal instinct is written into our created genes. God says, let's make man in our image. So interesting. We could even look at the bit where God makes everything, mountains, trees, animals, cool animals, weird animals, weird animals like owls, they're weird, turn the heads right round, that's bizarre, don't know why it's necessary, but it just freaks me out, I just like, like the, I hate the idea that as a baby owl, as a child owl, you can't get away with anything, because your parents have literally got eyes in the back of their head, it's a nightmare, but God creates all of this stuff, and every time he creates, he says, that's good, 
That is so good. Good job, me. Good job, us. Good job, we. That's good. And he makes Adam. Adam's lingering in the garden. And God's saying, that's not good. He says, it's not good for him to be alone. That's just not good. Like, I wonder, I don't know, I'm reading between the lines. What if Adam started to present some of these depressive symptoms? Oh, I'm feeling so low today. Got no one to talk to. This is God. Like, how do I relate to God? His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than mine. Like, I feel low. I don't want to get out of bed today. I don't want to tend to the garden. I don't want to feed the animals. I don't want to name the animals. I'm tired. I'm just reading between the lines here. I mean, that's not the gospel according to Tom. I'm just saying, for some reason, God looked at Adam in the garden alone and said, that's not good. And so God creates Eve so that they can relate to one another. And it's an interesting thought because often we say, Jesus, you're all I need. <laughs> you <laughs> you like that? <laughs> I feel like I should have a band. You're all I I've committed now. Everyone <laughs> Help me know you and me. Like, cool song, right? I just wonder what it would sound like. You're all I need. And the people. You're all I've ever. Oh, yeah, no, You're all I want. And people as well. You're all I've ever. Because the truth is, the best thing for you is God and people. So let me tell you this Jesus is enough for your salvation. You don't need anyone to save you, just Jesus. But let me tell you this, it might be Jesus and people that become your deliverance. Like the breakthrough you're looking for, I mean, it might originate with God, but most likely it's going to come through man. People are provoked. Because actually, we need people. It might even sound like almost heretical, like, no, no, I just need Jesus, man. No. No. We need one another. We need community. We need tribe. That's why it breaks my heart when people say, oh, no, I don't really go to church. I don't need church. It's just me and God on the God channel. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. No. It's not good for man to be alone. I think if God rewrote that, it's not good for man to be alone, even if he's got an iPad. <laughs> That's what he would say now, I'm sure. Even if he's on Instagram, it's not good. It's so important. Could even look at Acts 2 and say, look at the early church. Look at them. I mean, there was a commonness about it. It said they had everything in common. There was a cause. They, they, they knew that they had to go into all the world. So they were cause-oriented. They did face-to-face. It says that they were together together. They were together in one place. So the early church modeled something of God's dream for community. And it says, and they grew in favor with God and with who? People. The church became a magnetic force Because something of kingdom's thinking on community was being outworked through people. And people loved what they saw, gravitated towards it. So we could look at those things. But I wanted to look at this because I think this is way interesting. David, one of the biggest names of the Bible. Probably my favorite character in the Old Testament. An amazing man, amazing call on his life, an amazing leader. I love his story because it started like a Hollywood film. Saul, a prophet who needs to come and appoint a new king for Israel, his people, goes to David's brothers and assesses them, and they all look like kings in the making. They're all big, the stature, they stand tall. But God's saying it's not them. 
is there anyone else? And Saul says to Jesse, David's dad, is there anyone else? And Jesse says, ah, there is. There's someone else, but he's in the fields. He's looking after, he's the youngest one, looking after the sheep. And, 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 and Saul, uh, Samuel, sorry, Samuel's like, go and get him. And so David comes before Samuel, and Samuel sees him, and God says, that's him. That's the one. That's the man. And even Samuel's struggling, don't, don't look like a king. God's like, that's the man. Anoint him. Samuel anoints David. So an amazing start. David's life then kind of, he, he isn't fast-tracked to the palace and to kingship. Actually, there's already a king on the throne, Saul. So even though there's a promise on David's life and future and he has been anointed for the purpose, it isn't just happening the next day. It's not like he was called on the Monday and enthroned on the Tuesday. Sounds like a Craig David song, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> just saying. But it's interesting because he goes kind of back into shepherding, but eventually gets this opportunity to come before Goliath, an, opposite, an opposer and an enemy of Israel, Goliath the giant. You may have heard the story, David and Goliath. And it's interesting because David, even though he's small and, and short in stature, comes against this war champion, Goliath, who stands tall and is intimidating a whole Israelite army. And David comes just with a backstory of saying, you know, I've, I've fought lions off, I've fought bears off, so I can deal with this uncircumcised Philistine in the same way. And he takes a sling and a stone to a sword fight, basically. David takes him down. I love the story of David. Multiple things. David writes this psalm. But when he writes this psalm, it's not like he's on the up and things are awesome. It's actually things are rubbish. Because Saul isn't liking the fact that David is growing an influence with his army. So Saul now is trying to drive David from the kingdom of Israel. David is on the run for his life. And I just imagine David in this moment thinking, you said I was going to be king. And Psalm 142 tells us that it was written in the cave of Adullam, which means the hiding place. David is in a cave, even though there is an anointing on his life for kingship, he finds himself in a cave. Even though he is called to something significant and something greater, he finds himself in a cave. Even though he's supposed to be the leader of God's people, he doesn't have two people to rub together, which is a weird thought. <laughs> an inappropriate thought, but it came out. What can I say? Psalm 142, let's crack on. Cave of Adullam, pen and paper, he decides to write a worship song, and so many of his worship songs are uplifting. Praise the Lord, you know. Um, sing to the Lord a new song. Let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. His love endures. Right? Written so many uplifting songs. But listen to what David writes here in the cave of Adullam. Pen and paper. Like, dips it, maybe. I don't know how he wrote, dipped it in something. Let's just say he did that, like Shakespeare. <laughs> but <laughs> pens this psalm. I cry out to the Lord. Okay, right. I plead for the Lord's mercy. Right, okay. I pour out my complaints before him, and I tell him all my troubles. Wait, wait, you're telling me David's got troubles? God has told him he's going to be the king of Israel, but he ain't king yet. Right now he's in a cave, and he's insignificant, and he's penning this. Tell him my troubles. Verse 3. When I am overwhelmed, he looks to God. You alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. And it's almost like this self-coaching moment where David's saying, listen, when I'm over, you're the only one I can turn to because there is no people around me. Look, it says, verse 4, I look for someone, now not speaking of God, speaking of someone on his own level. I look for someone to come and help me, 
but no one gives me a passing thought. Has anyone ever been in that situation? Only four of us. That's cool. So pleased for the rest of you. So right for some. I've been there. Feel alone. And my life is filled with people. He says, I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. Not only are they not here helping, they're not even thinking about me. And no one even gives a toss about me. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, mate. Uh, no one will help me. No one cares a bit about what happens to me. David's saying, like, if I died in this cave, it, it may not have been true, but this is how it feels. If I died in this cave, in this hide, I don't know if I'd even be found. Until there's a smell coming out of the cave. I don't know if anyone would find me. No one's going to miss me. Like, I don't know if that was true for him, but that's how he felt. You're entitled to have your feelings. You know that, right? God can handle them. Like you can express your deepest, deepest, deepest struggle before God and before brothers and sisters and friends if you have them. But God can hear them. God's like, oh my gosh, David's having a meltdown in the cave. Oh my gosh, oh, crazy, crazy, crazy. But David's just like, no one gives a passing thought. No one thinks about me. Verse 5, but listen to this. Then I pray to you, O Lord, and I say, you are a place of refuge. You are all I really want in life, and that sounds great. Hear my cry, for I am very low, which is a depressive symptom, right? Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. So it almost seems like David's picked him out, and now he's saying, I'm just looking to God. But then we see a curveball in verse 7. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you, and the godly will crowd around me, for you are good to me. David is essentially saying to God, God, you're all I need, but I want people. I need people. I need help. And you're all I need, but I actually need people. I need help. And I'm dreaming of a day where godly people will crowd around me and be my allies in pushing, allies in pushing this cause forward. Bring me out of prison. How many times have you felt like you're in a prison even though there's no bars? Like a mental prison. Patterns of thinking, destructive patterns of thinking, mindsets, mentalities that are killing you softly and killing you slowly. It's like a prison and you're like, I just need to get out of this prison. But David acknowledges it's not just God who's going to help me out. I need the godly around me. So David prays this prayer. Let's jump forward a little while. Look at this. This is really interesting. This is later. 2 Samuel 23. We see the provision of the prayer. This is awesome. Listen to this. These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. So now David's got warriors. That's cool. Who would like some warrior friends? I would like some warrior friends. Like, I've only got little, like, slew friends. I want warrior friends. The first one was Jashobiam, the Hakmonite, who was the leader of the three. Okay, so he's got three killer monster friends, allies. Look, here's his story. This Jashobiam, he once used his spear... Listen to this is nuts. To kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. Anyone seen the film 300? Uh, no, I haven't either, because it's not a Christian film, obviously. I haven't seen it. I don't know what you're talking about. I only watch Flywheel and Facing the Giants and stuff like that. Not 300. 300 is a film, basically, it's a Hollywood story about how very few 300 took on a whole nation. I think this would be a much better film. How one person took on 800. Like, it's crazy. With one spear. One of David's mighty men. Verse 9. Next in rank among the three was Eliezer. And I don't like these names. They make it tricky to preach. Son of Dodai. 
If, any, if anyone's pregnant today and you're thinking about a name that no one else is going to have, there's a few in this uh, passage here. You, can, you won't even need to shotgun it. No one is going to challenge you for it. I am sure of that. I was saying in the first service, it would be easier if it was names like Gary and Colin and Barry and Badger and Roger and Margaret. It, just easier. Next in the rank, the three, was Roger, son of Margaret, <laughs> which is a weird thought when you know Roger and Margaret, come to think of it, but it is what it is. Let's say to Eliza, when once Gary and David stood together against the Philistines, when the entire Israelite army had fled. Like, what a good army that is. They fled. They've gone. But Gary stands with David. I don't really want to say Gary. Let's say Eliezer. I think that's how you say it. Verse 10, he killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to lift his sword. And the Lord gave him a great victory that day. The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. Oh, the army came back then, didn't they? As soon as the battle's won and there's like winnings to be had. Oh, no, we're back. Oh, we're just getting a drink. <laughs> we're always going to come. He thought we left it. No, no, just helping Roger down here. Like, we're, just going. we're back now. Oh, there's plunder. Cool, let's, let's have a share. Verse 11, next in rank was Shammah. Everyone say Shammah. Son of Agi from Harar. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites. Why can't it just be normal words? And attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. And look again, the Israelite army fled. <laughs> look, everyone ran. But not these men, listen. But Shammah held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. So now we're seeing three mighty men that David have in his ranks who will literally lay down their life for the cause beyond themselves. I mean, it gets even crazier. Look at this. This one cracks me up. David remarked longingly to his men, oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. Now, this is more difficult than you think. Bethlehem was off limits because the Philistine army had encamped around it, so it wasn't easy to get it. But David just makes a passing comment to his three. He just says, oh, I'd love a drink from that well. And I'd be like, oh, that's nice. Maybe one day you'll get one. <laughs> but look what happens. The three mighty men, David's closest friends, broke through the Philistine lines, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, and brought it back to David. This is really funny. Listen. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. I, I don't know what your imagination's doing, but I'm just picturing like these three battle-bruised people coming back from Bethlehem with like a bucket, like absolutely being like water coming out, like they've got a full bucket when they were there, but now there's only half left because it's just like they've just had to come through these camps and like all this kind of stealth treatment, all this stuff. Like, come to that. David, future king, captain, we love you, our friend. We got you the water that you dream of. And instead of going, oh, my boys, thank you so much. And just drinking it and soaking himself. Like, oh, awesome. He goes, I refuse to drink it. <laughs> I said, like, you're kidding me. Did you see Gary? He's taking a right beating for that. Come on, anyone got a sense of humor in the house today? That's funny. That's funny a hundred times over. No, I shall pour it out as an offering to the Lord. But it's our offering. We're the ones who did it. It's all right for you. It didn't cost you anything. Anyways, anyway, that's my own gripe there. But look, it says, these are examples of the exploits of the three. Just some examples. Three amazing allies. If you read the passage on, it speaks of the 30. The 30 of David's might the next tier of friends, allies, connections. And uh, ultimately, you see that David had 400, a gathering of mighty men that would rally around the cause of David. 
who, who wants a friend like Gary and Shama? I, I want friends like that. How I long for that water from the well of Boscombe. <laughs> High Street. But do you know how dangerous it is? Yeah, but I just long for that, long for that, that, that Evian on sale. I wish I'll go. I long for friends like that. David found them. It's amazing because David prays this prayer. One day the godly will crowd around. One day there's going to be people who give a passing thought and will rally around the cause. A little while later, these three mighty legends of friends show up. But look, this is the crazy thing. Let me show you the bit between those two things, between David's request and David's outcome. Look at this passage. This is so interesting. Look. 1 Samuel 22. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, which is where we read Psalm 142. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Verse 2. Then others began coming. Legends, perfections, people who had it all together. No, he doesn't say that. It says that others began coming, men who were in distress, in debt, and discontent. So David prays this bold prayer. How I long for a godly crowd around me. And then a provision and an answer comes. And I'd be like, not them. <laughs> not them, Lord. They're losers. <laughs> Discontent. Distressed. In debt. <laughs> it's crazy. That's what David had to work with. So David forms a tribe that become a war machine of allies. People who ultimately get David to the throne. But he didn't come in the package I would expect. I don't know if Ben wants to come up because I do need to stop now. But ultimately, the reason that broken people rallied around David is because that was the only option. And let me tell you this. This is a picture of the church. It's almost like David is a type of Christ, if you like, a picture of Jesus. Like. And it's not like he's got models of perfection to work with who are all smashing it out the park. Because, you, you, you know, even if you're feeling good today, and I love that, the truth is you come and you fall well short of the standard. And I come and I fall well short of the standard. But Jesus, in his mercy, says, in debt, I can work with that. You're depressed, I can work with that. You're discontent, I can work with that. And I just wonder if there's a sense that like, stop looking for the finished product in the people that you will stand with. And understand that you become an integral part to building the picture that God is trying to play out. The journey of community and tribe that alone we don't really have anything, but together we have something significant. Stop looking for people who have it all together. Sometimes people do have maybe more rational thinking or maybe have more money in the bank and have all those things going. That's cool. We celebrate that. We don't belittle that. We don't say if you've got that, then you're not as good. But ultimately, if we begin to think that community always comes in the way that we expect it's going to come, then you're mistaken. Instead, understand, you know what? This life, it's simply broken people helping broken people serve an awesome God. That's the kingdom equation. Brokenness plus brokenness serving perfection. And Kevin's prophetic words, so profound, so profound. God doesn't despise your weakness. He only despises it if you try to hide it. 
and ignore it. But actually acknowledging it, he says, I can add my strength to that. The biggest dysfunction, I can add my strength to that. Weariness, I can add my strength. Fatigue, lowness, I'll add my strength to that. Every day of the week, I'll add my strength to that because in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. And can you just not that one, the next one? Boom, 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 boom. Yes, that's it. Good. Sorry. Yeah, you can put them up. Intimate connectedness. This is what the world, this is what science is saying you need. And it, to be honest, I don't need to use science because the Bible says it, but you need intimate connectedness. You need one or two people that you can confide in or that can confide in you. If you don't have that, to start thinking about how am I going to find that? And it might not be in the people you expect. But number two, you need relational connectedness. A small group of close friends or family sharing good times. You need a small group. Someone you can share. This is secular like study. This isn't, but what's it? Collective connectedness, becoming a part of something bigger than yourselves, pushing a cause forward together. And I was thinking as I read this, I thought, this is David right here. It's his three, it's his 30, it's his 400. In fact, it's a picture of Christ Peter, James, and John, the 12 disciples, the 72. In fact, it's a picture of us. It's me and my closest allies. It's my small group. It's my church. Do you see it? Do you see it? Yeah, give that a little round of applause. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And so we want to challenge you. Don't settle for loneliness. In the next year, we're going to be intentionally putting more small groups out there because we think that they're going to be integral to the future of the house. We just think they're going to be important. A shift that we're making is try not to think of being a church with small groups, but a church of small groups. That when we gather together as one people, it really is the outcome of loads of small groups gathering together in one place, so we become family together. And so on the 26th of November, Philly's going to be doing a leadership night. Well, not a leadership night, but a small group host training night at Lounge One. And if you're interested in maybe this is something that you might have a burden for to open your homes for people, not necessarily to teach the Bible, but maybe to play a discipleship video and just allow and facilitate a conversation. You may feel like you're ill-equipped, like you're not ready, like you're, you're not in the right place. Just come to the evening and see what you think. We just want to create space for people. Let's stand together, shall we? We, we need to wrap up and... Um, the band want to come up Hattie do you want to come up as well let me just pray for every person just open your hands to heaven Father God I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room today Lord I pray Father that you would release a new season of fruitful relationships in their life Lord God connectedness that is not natural but supernatural God connectedness that isn't ordinary but it's extraordinary Lord God A connectedness that isn't self-oriented or self-motivated, but something that we just know, Father, that we don't just exist on this earth to live by ourselves. We're here to live and dwell in community. Father, would you have your way in us, through us, Lord? And would you just make strong the bond of unity in this house through friendships, through allies, through family, through church? Help us find small groups, Lord, that don't just give us life, but that actually we contribute to the life and fruitfulness of it, God. Help us find close allies, God, that we can confide in, that can confide in us. And help us find our place in a church somewhere to serve, somewhere to sit, somewhere to dwell, Lord, where we know that we are part of a gathering much bigger, pushing towards a cause beyond ourselves for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen.